Hello everyone, my name is Frederick Gieschen. I write the Necker Substack, and I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with William Green, the author of the book Richer, Wiser, Happier, which on the surface is a book about different investors that William profiled. It's an exploration of the intersection of investing and worldly wisdom and practical, practical philosophy about how to live a good life. It's one of my favorite books this year, and Again, it's one of those works where I, I went through the footnotes and there were just so many references to, to other works, including a lot of philosophical and spiritual texts. And it seemed to me that William was really exceptionally well-read and very thoughtful about, about very different schools of thought. And I could not wait to ask him about it. I was really excited. It was an amazing conversation. I'm very grateful to him. I'm really excited to share it with you. Please be aware. None of it is investment advice, and everything is just the personal opinion of either me or William. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm Frederick Gieschen. I write the uh, Necker Substack, and today I'm joined by William Green, the author of Richer, Wiser, Happier, which is a book I loved and would highly recommend or have recommended. And William, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate that you're, that you're taking the time to, uh, to talk to me. Hi, Frederick. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. So this is, I, I wanted to start this off a little bit differently because I put this sticker on the front of the book and it says, this is not a book about investing, which is, of course, it is a book about investing. But when I read it, I was struck by how you found the sort of the overlap between investing and sort of wisdom for, for life and how there's a lot of, in the footnotes and in your personal commentary, just it, it seems you're really well versed in philosophy, you know, spiritual texts. And I just, I, I want to hit on that a little bit today. And maybe let's start off with how you came to the book in general. Like what was your, your journey and, and how did you end up writing it? Sure. It's a perceptive comment on, on your part, because I often, I often think of the book almost as a stealth spiritual book. It's, it's dealing, it's dealing with money and with how to get rich and how to become financially independent and financially secure. But investing is really just a subset of worldly wisdom, to use a phrase that Charlie Munger would use that I, I, I think probably he stole from John Maynard Keynes, if I remember rightly. It's, it's all about worldly wisdom, right? We're, we're trying to figure out how to, how to live, how to think better, what money actually means, what, what actually makes a rich and abundant life. Will, if, if you spend all your time working and striving to become rich, what will that actually give you anyway? What, what do you do to deal with the fact that the world is a really uncertain place and that we don't really know anything about what's going to happen in the future? How do you deal with the fact that we fail at stuff and that we have setbacks? And, and so in some ways, when I look at investing, I think it's just a microcosm of all of these things. You can see within investing this exquisite complexity of life, all of the ways in which we're living in this murky place where we don't know much and we can't tell what the future holds, and yet we somehow have to try to make decisions. And I think what I realized gradually as I was interviewing all of these great investors over many years was that they're tremendous pragmatists. And it struck me, I started to think of them as practical philosophers. And so they're not wrestling with questions like, does this chair exist? They're actually dealing with these very profoundly practical questions like, 
if the future is unknowable and if, as the Buddhists say, everything changes constantly, how the hell do I make any decisions that are rational? You know, do you just throw up your arms and your hands and say, no, I can't do it. It's too difficult and just leave it to chance and, and fate. Or are there ways of stacking the odds in your favor? And so what I decided to do was to try to synthesize and distill what I'd learned from interviewing the great investors and say, actually, even within this very murky and uncertain world, which, which can hold things like COVID that suddenly come along and throw everything in our lives upside down, even within this uncertainty, there are actually ways of stacking the odds in your favor, not only to become financially secure and independent, but actually to have a happier and better and more abundant life. And, and so I was, I was working through these issues, these questions in my own mind, trying to figure out how to become richer, wiser, and happier. And in doing so, trying to share those ideas with other people. And I think there's something about the process of writing that forces you to think through ideas more rigorously. And then there's something about the process of, of trying to teach those ideas to other people, to share those ideas in some way that also concentrates your mind really beautifully. And so to some degree, it's a self-centered book that I'm trying to figure out these questions for myself. But it, but it, it really helped me that I was trying to share the answers with other people in, in an honest and hopefully helpful way. So there's something, there is something didactic about it. I mean, I, I'm not just writing a book trying to kind of pump out stuff so I can, I can, I can brand myself or anything like I'm actually trying to figure out how to live. And, and so there's a kind of seriousness to, to the, to the process. And in some ways it became more serious during COVID. I, I was working on the last part of the book just as COVID was, was turning our lives upside down. And it gave me an intense sense of my own mortality. And I started to think, well, let me at least leave one thing in my life that's worthwhile. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Let, mm -hmm. me, let me create something that's worthwhile that maybe will be helpful to people. So there's a sort of grandiosity to the ambition of it where I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually trying, to, trying to create something that will, will help readers and, and, and also at the same time help myself. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely got the impression reading it that it was sort of you were exploring the topics with the subject, but at the same time, the, the you weren't just looking for the answers to communicate to, to the reader, but it was sort of your own journey of, of finding finding these, like wrestling with these these questions. And like you said, especially sort of uncertainty in, in life and dealing, dealing with uh, setbacks. I was curious, so what I picked up from the book is that you, you're well read in everything from Zen Buddhism to the Stoics to the Kabbalah, like maybe I'm mispronouncing you this year, but there's a quote where you wrote, I dip into the Zohar almost every day. I, I, I might be mispronouncing, but I'm wondering is like, has that always been, is that something that precedes the book or is there, are there things that you picked up and like, tell me about what you're reading and, and why and how it's influenced your life. Uh, I've been, it's funny. No, I, 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 I put in that sentence in the book and nobody has ever asked me about it. It's curious that you picked up on it. And it's funny, even, even on, on my desk here, as I'm talking to you, I have the Zohar open. And as we were starting to talk right before, as you were 
doing your introduction, I kind of looked down and I opened it and I kind of dipped into it and I was just reading a sentence of it. And so there's something a little bit nutty about that. It's this ancient book written in Aramaic and my Aramaic is not good to say the least. I mean, I, I can pick up various words, but I've been, I've been studying that sort of thing for, I've probably been studying the Zohar for about 13 years or so. And it's just a very, very beautiful and mystifying text. And you can never really understand it. I think there are little bits that you understand. But I'll give, I'll give you an example, if, uh, if you don't mind me being specific. Oh, please, yeah. So, so the, the Zohar, which is the main text in Kabbalah or Kabbalah, depending on how you like to pronounce it, the, the Kabbalists would say that it was written or revealed by Shimon Bar Yochai a couple of thousand years ago. There's, there's even debate about who really wrote it. But I, I, I defer to them as saying it was from Shimon Bar Yochai. And I've been to the cave in Israel where it, it was said to have been revealed by Shimon Bar Yochai with his friends around him. It's a, it's a pretty amazing place. And it, 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 explains, it explains the Old Testament in, in a very interesting way where it says, well, if you believe these stories are literally true, it says it would be better that you were never born. And so it says everything is coded. It's all coded. And so it guides you through the weekly portions in the Old Testament that you read on a Saturday morning in synagogue. And it tells you this is what it's really about. And so, for example, this, the, the bit that we're reading at the moment, Joseph is in a dungeon and he's stuck in the dungeon. I think he's there for something like 16 years. And there's a bit in the Zohar where he gets out of the dungeon. And I've read that part of the Zohar like dozens and dozens of times because there's something really beautiful about it because it's really a coded story about how do you get out of the dungeon when you're stuck, when you feel like you're going nowhere in your life, when you're lost, how do you get out of the dungeon? And so it becomes a story about consciousness and how could he be free while he was stuck in jail. And so if you start reading it that way, it becomes very beautiful and, and actually really helpful. Or I, I, I'll give you another example. I really like the, the, where the It says in the Old Testament that the Israelites were always fighting the Amalekites. And I'm, I'm no Torah scholar by any means, so to, I, I'm infinitely correctable on this stuff. So every generation it says you had to beware of the Amalekites, you know, this tribe that would come from behind and kill you. And, and, and it says you're always going to be fighting with them. And so the Kabbalists, they, 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 the, each letter of the Hebrew or Aramaic alphabet has a numerical value. So they would say, well, the numerical value of the word Amalek, which is this tribe, is the same as the numerical value as the word Safek, which means doubt. And so what they would say is, this isn't about a fight that you have every generation with the Amalekites, this tribe that the Israelites fought with. 4,000, 4,500 years ago, or whatever it was, 3,500 years ago. It's about this war of consciousness with your own doubt. And that becomes kind of a really beautiful idea. So then you start to think, well, okay, so things like racism, homophobia, xenophobia, really come from fear and doubt, from this sense that we look at other people and we think, yeah, they're kind of threatening. And Or you think of the things that you do that are unethical or full of rage or whatever, all the times we behave badly, it tends to be because we're full of doubt or fear. And, and so if you read the Old Testament, literally, you just think it's kind of this meaningless story about fighting the Amalekites. 
But if you read it in this sense of it's, it's all really about a battle of consciousness. And so there was a great, a great Kabbalist who was a teacher of mine who died a few years ago, a guy called Rav Berg, who, who just said, everything is consciousness. It's all about consciousness. And so when I study things like Tibetan Buddhism, which I also find exquisitely beautiful, or Stoicism, which I found very helpful, I see this tremendous overlap that it's really all about consciousness. It's about how, how do you gain control over your inner landscape? How, how do you gain control over your mind? And, and so I, I think in the epilogue, I quote this great line from the poet Milton, who was blind, who was saying that the, the mind can make a hell of heaven or heaven of hell. And that's something that I read probably 30 years ago as a student studying English literature at Oxford. And it still resonates with me. And the same thing with someone like William Blake, who I loved, who's one of the great romantic poets and mystics, who talked about mind-forged manacles. And so to me, this, this whole idea of how you gain control over your mind, how you gain control over your thoughts, is really important because you could have all of the money in the world, but if you're full of envy and jealousy and a sense of your own lack or, or this just uh, constant need to make more and more and more, you can actually end up making your life hell. You think of someone like that oligarch, Berezovsky, who committed suicide a few years back. I'm, I'm guessing that Berezovsky, even after losing billions of dollars to Putin, still had more money than any of us and, and yet got to a point of such misery living in his beautiful estate in in Surrey or wherever it was with, you know, what was left of his billions that he committed suicide. And so I'm really interested in this question of how you gain control of your mind. So in some ways, this is a recurring theme of the book. If you think of, of Mm -hmm. writing about Sir John Templeton, for example, Templeton, who I really dismissed as a bit of a kook when I interviewed him 22 years ago, something like that, when I spent a day with him in the Palmas, just understood this stuff way, way sooner than I did as a sort of uh, wise aleck, know-it-all 30-year-old who went to interview him and was thinking, well, why is he talking about mind control? And Templeton was kind of an austere guy, right? He was pretty, he was pretty tough on himself and other people in certain ways. And so he would say, if someone, if someone was a, arranging an appointment, he would say, be here at 403 because I have another appointment at 412. So at the time I just thought this guy's kind of cracked. Like he's so severe and so stern over, over time, money, thoughts. I mean, he, he said if, if he had a negative thought, he would, he would always replace it with positive thoughts. Like, like he would say, this comes to bless me if something tough happened to him. And now I look back and I just think, God, I was such a moron. I was so close-minded. I failed to understand that what he was saying is, no, no, you have to, you have to win this inner game in order to have a happy and successful life. And so this is something I write about in the epilogue of the book where I'm, I'm, I, I end the book by writing about Arnold Vandenberg because he, again, he's someone, mm-hmm. he's someone who won this inner game, who transformed his inner life. So for me, all of this stuff is is interconnected. When I'm when I'm reading the Zohar, or I'm reading Blake, or I'm reading Milton, or I'm reading about Zen Buddhism or Stoicism. I'm just making these connections, and I'm thinking, oh, it's all about how you gain control over your mind. It's all it's all an inside job. 
And, and so it may sound like this stuff is really esoteric and highfalutin and that I've kind of gone off the deep end. But actually, you, you start to... There's a beautiful line that, that Charlie Munger would often quote about how everything is one damn relatedness after another. And you just start to see how related all of this stuff is. And, and it clarifies your mind because you start to think, well, if I'm just focused on enriching myself or becoming more professionally successful, that's not going to do it. I have to actually gain control of my thoughts. And, and so one, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently, I've, I've been studying Tibetan Buddhism quite a lot, and there's a wonderful teacher, a guy called Sopni Rinpoche, who I've been studying. And I can see that the, these Tibetan Buddhists over a thousand years just became extraordinary students of the mind and how to tame the mind. And one of the things that... Sotni Rinpoche. Rinpoche means precious one, I think. Uh, this is about the full extent of my knowledge of Tibetan, which is about as good as my Aramaic. One of, the things that, one of the things that he does, which I think is really beautiful, is a practice called handshake practice, where when negative emotions come up, so say you're full of fear or anxiety or, or jealousy or anger or something, instead of repressing them or suppressing them, he handshakes them and he says, ah, oh, hello. Uh, yeah, I was waiting for you. Welcome. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you abide with them and you acknowledge them instead of repressing them or suppressing them or projecting onto someone else. And and I just think that's a really profound and interesting and helpful approach because usually we deny this stuff. And, and I had this this morning. I, I was getting into the shower and I suddenly felt kind of melancholy or anxious about something. And I could see that I wanted to avoid it. And I just sort of stood there for a moment. I was like, all right, let me feel that. And then, uh-huh. like everything else, it passes. And you're like, okay. And, and you move on. Because if everything is impermanent, all of the negative feelings are impermanent as well, just as the positive ones are. And so you just, you just wait for it to pass. And, and, and he has this beautiful term for it where he calls these negative emotions or negative thought patterns your beautiful monsters. And he says, one, one day we will be friends with all of our beautiful monsters. And if you, think about, if you think about what it was like for you growing up in Germany or me growing up in England, I don't think we were very in touch with our emotions. We were, mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up in this very competitive environment going to schools like Eton and Oxford and, and everything was about how can I win? How can I get ahead? How can I, how can I make people respect me and think that I'm smart and powerful and wealthy and it's a it's all to to use a Buffett term an outer scorecard game it's 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 worrying about how other people will judge you and what I've gradually realized is that actually it's it's an inner game and yeah you want to be successful and yeah you you want people to respect you and think that what you do is valuable but that's uh, that's that's not ultimately going to satisfy you. So you've got to somehow turn this game inwards, I think. But it's, but it's difficult to do in those early years. I, I, I don't know how old you are, Frederick. You look much younger than, younger than I do on the screen here. I'm, I'm 53. And so in the, in the early days of my career, I was so busy trying to get ahead and trying to prove myself and trying to make everyone think I was smart and talented and, and, and worthy of respect that, I didn't really have that much time to deal with my angst or fear. Mm-hmm. And gradually as you yeah. get older, you're like, well, that didn't really work. And so either, either you become really successful and you realize that it didn't necessarily fill that hole 
or you didn't become that successful and you're like, well, that didn't work and I'm kind of disappointed. Mm -hmm. And so either way, I think there's some sort of existential angst in middle age where you're like, now let me go deeper and actually think about what's, what's going to make for a happier and more abundant life. And so all, all of these issues, I think inform richer, wiser, happier. They're all under the surface and maybe not even that much under the surface because this is the stuff that obsesses me. And, it, and, mm-hmm. and it's, it really does come up a lot in investing because these, these people have their failures and successes. And there's a wonderful thing from Jason Karp, one of the investors I write about in, in the epilogue, who was talking about how there was, he started to realize when he was running this very successful hedge fund that then suddenly became a not very successful hedge fund he started to realize that there was not really a connection between his process and the outcome and that he could work unbelievably hard and be incredibly talented and incredibly driven and competitive. And it didn't really mean that his results would be good. And so he said that disconnect between his effort and his performance was torture because he said he, said he was being judged weekly or monthly by his shareholders and by his peers, but he didn't actually have any control over that. So all he had control of was his process and his inner life. But he said it was literally, he he likened it to these experiments with with rats where they would pull a lever in in a cage and either it would give them a treat or it would give them an electric shock and they didn't know which. And at a certain point, it would induce insanity. And what he was saying to me basically is, I'm going nuts. This is killing me. And so the stuff that I've been talking about, about equanimity and gaining control of your thoughts and stuff, it can sound kind of highfalutin and esoteric, but actually it's so central to investing and to every other area of life because the the inner game of writing or of investing is dealing with these fears, your anxieties, your desire to be respected, to have honor, all of this stuff. It's your ability to deal with setbacks, your sense that however hard you work, sometimes it just doesn't work out. All of these things come into it. And so there's, there's the outer game. There's a sort of the, the superficial but really important outer game where, yeah, you've got to analyze the numbers of a company. You've got to think more rationally. You've got to have a better process. And you've got to make those calls and arrange the interviews and, and read more and more and be a continuous learning machine. And then there's the inner game, which is you've actually got to tame your mind because otherwise – the markets are so brutal or writing a book is so brutal or raising kids or, or dealing with marriage or being an athlete. All of these things are so intense at a high level that, that your inner vulnerabilities, those fault lines are going to get exposed. So I think if you don't take this stuff seriously, you're, you're hijacked by these things that you haven't dealt with, the inner stuff that you haven't dealt with. And so this is this is a bit of the journey that I'm on is trying to trying to explore these these this aspect of the inner game and it and it's kind of endlessly rich it's really fascinating and kind of kind of painful and kind of fun. I know that's uh, my God. There's so much to unpack here. Like I've been taking all these notes. So 
first of all, I mean, I can very much relate to that, just sort of being in my, having hit my, my mid-30s and sort of like a real bump in my career or like burning down the early part of my career where I was very much trying to, like not spending a lot of time on all of the issues or the topics that you just described and sort of saying like, oh, no, I got to focus on on work and was really running in kind of a direction that wasn't wasn't working. And now I'm, you know, I think now I'm much more cognizant of, yes, there is this balance of the, you apply yourself in the world and you also have to pay attention to the inner game. Because if you don't know yourself, there's, you can spend a lot of time running in the wrong direction, doing, doing things that make, uh, make no sense. And um, sometimes I think, I think what you were saying about how it has to burn down, like, like, I think, I think sometimes you need it all to fall apart in a fairly dramatic way whether it's a, a marriage, a job, health, a career, a reputation, you kind of need it to collapse. I mean, God forbid, it's not something you wish on anyone, let alone yourself. But I think, I think we can get subtly misaligned and feel that we're going in the wrong direction, but you keep mm. going because you're like, well, it's pretty good. You know, like yeah. you don't like the marriage or the relationship or the job or you sense that maybe you're becoming a little unethical and misaligned because you're working for a company that's dishonorable or something. And it's, it's subtle and incremental, the misalignment, mm -hmm. so you can handle it. But sometimes I think when there's a real collapse, it, it forces you to say, nah, that didn't work. Got to try a different approach. And, and, and so for me, part of what happened was that I had a very successful journalism career. And then at, I think the age of 40, I got laid off as the editor of the European, Middle East and African edition of Time. And that kind of forced me to look deeper and say, okay, so how, how do I build a life that's truly aligned with who I am? How do I deal with my sense of embarrassment and shame about having been laid off from this high profile job? How do I deal with the sense of unfairness, given that I was good at the job and I worked incredibly hard. In a way, it's the the problem that Jason Cobb had of the the disconnect between process and outcome. Yeah. So you're suddenly dealing with things like, well, so what if the world is unfair? What if it's meaningless? What if it's chaos? And curiously for me, it actually had the opposite effect that I would have expected. Instead of making me kind of nihilistic and disillusioned and cynical, it actually turned me from being pretty somewhere between agnostic and atheistic to actually becoming much more spiritual because I suddenly started to, I think around then I started to study Kabbalah and it made me think one of the beautiful things about, about that path of study was that there was a sense that nothing, nothing was an accident. Nothing was coincidental and, it was all in the movie of your life for some reason. And you had to figure out why and what you were supposed to learn from it. And so in a sense, it goes back to what Templeton was saying about when terrible things happened to you. And, and he lost his first wife in a motorcycle accident and it left him with three young kids to raise. He, his, his ability to say, this comes to bless you. It's an extraordinary habit, whether it's true or not, whether the world is just chaotic and meaningless and random or whether there's meaning to these things, it almost doesn't matter. If you take that approach of saying, there's something in this for, for me to learn, there's some way in which I'm going to benefit from this. Let, let, me, let me realign myself. It's such a powerful attitude that I think it becomes self-fulfilling. And I think one of the things that I liked about studying Kabbalah, actually, is that 
they, as I understood it, they would say, if, if you don't believe that there's order, if you just think it's all random and this stuff just happens and it's unfair and it's chaotic, you've actually created that reality because if consciousness is everything, you see the world as just chaos and disorder. But if, but if you think there's order and there's something for you to learn and that everything is there for you to grow, then you create that reality. And it, it reminds me a bit, there's a beautiful line from Einstein where he said, you can either live as if everything is a miracle or as if nothing is a miracle. And so your, your consciousness is creating your reality. And so if you look at the things you've gone through, whether it's breakdowns of relationships or breakdowns of career or existential angst, which I've had tons of over the years, and you think, God, it all led to these extraordinary things. That's a totally different attitude and different framing than if you say, God, poor me, things never work out for me. And so, so part of what I'm doing is literally pretty much daily, I'm trying to rewire my brain by pumping in messages, pounding in messages, to use a, a, a Munger-esque terminology, just pounding in these ideas of like, what, what's a more helpful way of seeing that? So in a sense, you're, you're reprogramming yourself. So if, if for example, like there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a beautiful ancient teaching from, there was, there was, a, there was a great Kabbalist around the time of Jesus called Rabbi Akiva, who would just say over and over again, my, my pronunciation will, will be terrible, Gamsula Tova, which is everything is for the best. It's, it's basically just saying that it's, it's all from the light. There's nothing that's negative. It's all here to help you in some sense. And so there was a, there's an extraordinary story where the temple, which was supposed to be the, the holiest place in the world in Jerusalem, burned down. And Rabbi Akiva, as he's watching it, starts dancing. And so that's an extraordinary thing. If you think of that triumph over sadness, uncertainty, fear about what's going to happen. And so in a sense, that's, I think, what we're trying to get to is this consciousness where you think everything is for the best. And, and what's tricky, I think, for cerebral people is that that seems stupid. And mm. so in the past, when I was judging someone like Templeton, I would have looked mm. at him and have thought, well, it's kind of puerile just to believe in God because it helps you. It's kind of like or to believe that there's order or to believe that this comes to bless you. It's kind of puerile to think that just because I want it to be true doesn't mean it is. But if it's true that you create your own reality with your consciousness, then maybe the pragmatic philosophers like William James and those guys who Bill Miller is obsessed with, maybe those guys were right and you, ideas are tools. And so why not pick a better tool? And so if an idea is like a fork or a knife or a hammer, why do I want to pick an idea like the world is chaotic, everything's falling apart, it's all going to hell and I'm going to be miserable and it's all ending terribly. Why not pick an idea like, all right, everything is for the best. There's stuff that I can learn from this pain. Let me, you know, maybe, maybe you end up growing yourself. Maybe it purifies something. Maybe you can help someone else because you went through this experience. And so it almost doesn't matter whether it's true or naive or not, it becomes true if that's the way you live. Does that, does that make any sense, Frederick? That resonates on so many levels, yes. I, so to me, 
I think, again, there's sort of this, this personal evolution where I can very much, and I just had this conversation with a friend. So to me, things like, you know, mindfulness or meditation or reading story text, there, there are certain things that have been very helpful in sort of starting what you described, like looking at your inner game and, and the ideas and, and belief systems that you have and, and sort of trying to create that distance between here I am conscious and like here are all these things that I could think about, but maybe I can think about something else as well. What I love is that you struck seem to strike the balance of not denying that you know certain emotions are there because I think there is maybe a danger that like mastering your inner game or mastering your mind, to me there's this connotation of, well, I'll create this world of, of make-believe and or I'll, I'll deny that I have certain emotions. And I know that from the past when I, like I grew up not being in touch with my emotions at all and that created so many problems i mean it, it it can be helpful in certain situations i mean there's there's maybe a reason why culturally it is that way but it just left me really being really unaware of who i was and and what i what i actually liked and kind of unable to prioritize values and and, and preferences and making good choices and so i'm still trying to figure out like what are the right tools and and something that I like that you wrote is you wrote one idiosyncrasy of this book is that I focused almost exclusively on investors I like and admire. It seems to me you were sort of conscious of you have your own journey and you were trying to not just remove ideas from your life or kind of restructure your inner mind, but also say, okay, I can write this book and I can I can have a wide variety of people I can pick. And I'm only going to pick the people where there's an alignment between what I'm trying to create in my own life and what I'm seeing that they've created or like where the ideas sort of resonate. And is, is that is that the right perception? Yeah, you? it's a perceptive comment. Sometimes I would start to write about something because I, I had interviewed someone who was a billionaire and was famous or a great moneymaker. And I would start writing it and it just would leave me cold. And I just would think, I don't really want this person in this book. I, I don't know. There's a, it, I, the image that I that I came up with in my own mind was that it was if the the body rejected this organ that was being transplanted into it. I write to some degree about David Hawkins in the first chapter, the chapter about Monish Pabrai, and Hawkins has this. He, he, for people who don't know him, he, he, he wrote books like Power Versus Force, which had a huge impact on Monish Pabrai and various other investors and had a big impact on me, although there are other books of his that I think have had a bigger impact probably. And Hawkins, Hawkins was a psychotherapist who had, I think, the biggest psychotherapy practice in New York City and then becomes this kind of enlightened mystic and is writing from this position where he's saying, this is how the world works. And what's curious to me is the things that he's writing – uh, jive perfectly with what the Kabbalists said and and what the Tibetan Buddhists said, which again, I think when you find people from multiple paths saying the same thing, you're like, okay, that's probably true. And so he would talk about how certain types of behavior or certain types of consciousness or or certain thought patterns actually make you go weak. For example, if you're if you're lying or you're untruthful, other people sense it and they might not know why they don't trust you, but something about your behavior makes them go weak. And this had a huge impact on, on Manish Pabrai because he, he reads the book and he thinks, well, let me never lie. I should always be truthful because that makes people go strong. And 
So in a sense, this is a roundabout way of saying that when I was writing about those people that I didn't particularly admire, I think it made me go weak. I felt just, it leaves you feeling slightly depleted. You think really, well, yeah, so this guy made a billion dollars or a couple of billion dollars. There was one person I was writing about at one point who, a very gifted money maker, very gifted at making money for himself in particular, very smart guy, really sharp, like a real sort of animal in the jungle, great at gathering information. I remember reading at one point about like, you know, his, one of his kids getting involved in like some, you know, rape allegations and stuff like that. And I just remember thinking of this guy and think, this is just not somebody I admire. And likewise, when and I'm not trying to be judgmental about this stuff because God knows, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not exactly flawless myself. But you, but I, I just wanted to write about people that make you go strong. That you look at, and they're they're looking at their own lives in an honest way. They're looking at their failings in an honest way, and they're trying to grow. And they're thinking about these problems of what it means to have, to build an honorable life and how what the money means and how to, how to be more resilient. And so th- think of someone like Bill Miller, for example, who I write about in mm-hmm. the epilogue. So Miller has this, this thrilling mind, right? And is an incredible investor who famously beat the market for 15 years running with, with his value trust fund. But then everything kind of fell apart during the financial crisis. And when I went to talk to him, I was really talking to him about how do you how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with public shame and evisceration? Because he would mm-hmm. he, he would look at Twitter, for example, and people would. People, I, I remember him showing me this this tweet where someone had written, some total stranger has written that that asshat Bill Miller, you know, is is going to fall apart again, you know, because Bill had this incredible rebound after after the financial crisis mm-hmm. and. So I was really fascinated by how he dealt with that criticism. And one of the things that was so interesting to me about Bill that made it, so, so you can see why this would resonate for me because I was wrestling with my own sense mm-hmm. of failure because I lost my job at time. I guess it was almost exactly a, a week or so, I think, after Lehman Brothers went under, so end of 2008. So at exactly the same time that Bill was betting on financial companies like that to rebound and was catastrophically wrong. I was seeing my own career as a journalist unravel and I was only 40 and I had two young kids to support. And and so it was, it was kind of scary. And so when I was interviewing him and talking to him about how do you deal with that? Where do you get your strength? What were you, what were you drawing on to get you through that process? It was very personal. It was very resonant for me. And so, so Bill, has a very unusual background as an investor. He didn't go to business school. He was in military intelligence. He's, he worked in Germany as a military intelligence officer. He, he came from a very poor background and he studied philosophy. And he, he left a PhD program in philosophy because he couldn't afford to keep going with it. So I was interested in how was, how was your study of philosophy helping you to deal with these failures and setbacks and this this public evisceration and mockery because everyone I think kind of enjoyed the fact that he'd fallen from grace. There was a lot of sort of Schadenfreude involved and mm-hmm. and so which you can translate much better than I can. I'm, I'm hazarding a guess that I'm using it correctly, but there was a sort of glee in his failure, I think, and mm-hmm. and a sense of yeah, we always knew he was flying too close to the sun. 
And, and Bill told me that during the financial crisis, he turned to the Stoics. So he was reading Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and Seneca. And, and so I was saying to him, so what did you get from them? And he said, well, you can't really control your reputation. You can't really control what people say about you. Your external circumstances are often beyond your control. In a way, it gets back to the Jason Cott problem of, yeah, you can have a great process, you can work incredibly hard, but still things can go against you. But what people like Marcus Aurelius would say is, you can control your own intentions, your own behavior, your, your, your inner person, your sense of honor, whether you face what you've done wrong, the mistakes that you've made, and honest about it, try to learn from it. And, and so I saw Bill dealing with this very painful stuff in a really honest and honorable way. And so he would, he would say, well, he didn't realize how catastrophically wrong I could be because he said, when you've been right, right, right for all of those years, mm -hmm. he said, even though theoretically you know that you need to be humble, you actually start to believe that you know what you're talking about. And he said, suddenly, when you fail so publicly, people don't want to get you back on CNBC to opine about stuff. And so he said, mm. you actually are forced to do a lot of introspection and to say, well, wh what do I really know? And what should I learn from this? And, and he said to me, I wasn't really focused on repairing my reputation. He said, that doesn't really matter to me that much. And he said, I wasn't really focused on restoring my own financial fortune because he said, look, I was the son of a taxi driver. And when we were, when we were kids, if we went to Burger King for a, our birthday, that was an incredible treat. Like we had nothing. And so he said, I've, I've been without money before. It's okay. He's like, I'd, I'd rather have money, but I was okay without it. It's not really about that. But he said it was torture that he lost money for so many shareholders and it was torture. I mean, his fund was down, I think, 65% for his smaller fund and maybe 50-something percent during in 2008, something like that. I mean, really, really intense drop. And he said more than 100 people lost their jobs at Leg Mason because of a mistake that he made. And so he said that was torture. So he said, I really wanted to help those people get new jobs. And so he was very happy that they had they had recovered and got new jobs. And he said... I really wanted to make back the money for my shareholders as much as I could. And one of the tragedies of that is that as investors often do, they all bailed out. So many mm -hmm. people bailed out yeah. and lost trust in Bill at exactly the moment where actually they should have been doubling down because he's a brilliant guy and his rebound was spectacular. So the people who kept faith in Bill have made an absolute fortune since then. And Bill himself has made an absolute fortune and is a billionaire. But most people didn't have the resilience to stick with it. And, and so for, for me, when I look at Bill Miller's story, I'm seeing this tremendous resilience, this ability to deal with adversity and to say, let me take control of my own behavior. Let me try to be honest and honorable, admit my mistakes, have humor about it, and I don't know, I, I, I write at some point in that epilogue, I say there's, 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 there's great honor in the simple virtue of perseverance. And I don't say that lightly. I, I think that really deeply. I mean, there's something, one of the things about writing is that when, when you really simplify and distill things, 
you're always worried that people will see how banal your mind is and how mm -hmm. trivial you are. But, but actually, truth is pretty simple, I think. And so for me, when I'm condensing it down to that, I mean, I, I said there are two great lessons for me from Miller's, Miller's downfall and recovery, because his recovery has been equally spectacular. One of them is about the simple virtue of, of perseverance. And one of them is everyone suffers. And just to sum that up in two words, this great kind of Buddhist truth of dukkha or suffering or unsatisfactoriness, that's a really profound realization because there's, we tend to assume that if you're very rich and very successful and famous, you've kind of got it made and you exist in this cocoon where you're protected from adversity in some ways. And part of what I was trying to do is say, no, no, look, even these people like Bill Miller and Monish Pabrai and Jason Karp, who, who have it made, who are brilliant and successful and renowned, they still suffer. And, and I, I don't know, sometimes you would talk to people about the, the pain of the very wealthy and people would be like, yeah, yeah, go cry me a river, like, you know, go, go cry into your sack of money. And part of what I was trying to do was say, well, actually, no, we all suffer. And that's, that's, that's kind of helpful to know because then when you're suffering yourself, you have to remind yourself, well, life is not a straight upward trajectory for anyone. And that's the case. Monish, who also had a really tough time during the financial crisis and has been through divorce and, and has rebuilt his life in a really beautiful way. It's the same for Charlie Munger, who lost his first child to leukemia and had a divorce and lost lots of money and in the process of paying for his kids' health care and had a terrible time in his, in his early part of his career, later lost an eye. And, you know, he, all of these guys have been through the ringer. And, and that's helpful to know because then when you're going through the ringer, you can say, okay, well, we're all going through this. There are times where life is difficult. And then you can look at these people and say, how did they deal with it? What can I learn from it? And, and so one of the great lessons from Munger that I love is that he said the, the idea of looking at life as a series of adversities that give you an opportunity either to behave well or badly is a very good idea. And he said it's particularly helpful in old age because the adversities come thick and fast. And so, so I'm looking at these people and I'm thinking, yeah, how do I become a better investor? And, but I'm also thinking that, that includes, because investing and the markets are a microcosm of everything, that includes becoming more resilient so you can get through these periods. You can, you can survive the dips where things don't work out. And so I'm kind of hoping that someone is reading that epilogue and is saying, oh, wait a second. So there's simple honor, just that there's great honor in the simple virtue of perseverance. And these guys suffered. Let me just keep going. Let me keep plugging away because things will change just as they change for Charlie Munger just as they changed for Monish Pabrai, just as they changed for Bill Miller. So let me plug away. And I have to say there are times where I've been going through difficult times where I would actually turn to that last chapter, that epilogue, and I would read it again myself, and I'd be like, oh, okay, okay. And it just gives you a little more strength to say, yep, okay, this, this happens, we all suffer, it can be difficult, and you, you kind of feel the pain and you move forward. And then things change, because everything changes. That's... Yeah, that's I, 
That's beautiful, and and there's there's a lot here, and and I think you. So one one of these things that you touched on, right, is resilience and perseverance, and I mean, I I wrote about Bill Miller like after reading his his old shareholder letters, and I, I in in your book, and that moment when you're deep in the labyrinth, right, and like it's dark, and like you don't know, you just you kind of know you have to keep going, but. If you're a shareholder, you're tempted to bail out and redeem from the fund. If you're a fund manager, you're tempted to just kind of throw in the towel, right? And like, I was thinking like, there's there's so many things that compound at that point, right? Whether it's divorce, losing money, the public shame, the just the that that doubt that really impairs your ability to to make good decisions and see the future, and your sort of your time horizon kind of collapses, and you're just sort of okay, how do I survive right now? So I, I do think that's. I, I always wonder, I, I hear you, and I, when I read it, I'm like, yes, this makes sense. But in that situation, is reading reading the story helps, but is it is it really enough? I, I know that I still, in those situations, have to figure out how do I how do I change, right? How do I um, regain sort of control or, or semblance of control of, of the inner game or of my mind? And I always feel like, yes, yes, reading helps. There's, there's maybe other things that I can, that I can do or have to do, but I think it's a hugely important point. Yes. I think it's clarifying when you distill these ideas, it's clarifying because you can look at Miller's story and you can say, okay, what can I control and what can't I control? And this is one of the lessons from, say, Epictetus, one of the great Stoics, that, that you have to distinguish between what you can and can't control. And so if you really, if you read that part of the book and you internalize it, then every time you're faced with a problem, you can say, all right, so, okay, my reputation's under threat or my finances are under threat or or my, my ego and my sense of my own importance or whatever is under threat. But what can I control here? Well, I can make the call. I can put together my resume. I can, I can work hard. I can work out. I can, you, you know, I, mm. I can help other people. You know, just having that simple filter from the Stoics of what can I control and what can't I control? And, and so there's, there's one of the other things that, that Bill Miller read during the, during the financial crisis where everything was melting down for him was he read Thoughts of a Philosophical Fighter Pilot by Vice Admiral Stockdale, who was, he was shot down over Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And, at, and he had studied the Stoics and particularly Epictetus at Stanford as a, as a sort of mid-career, very, very high, I guess, Air Force pilot. And so as he was ejecting, when he had just been shot down, he said to, to himself, I am leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. And so, mm-hmm. so he, over the next few years, well, I mean, he spent several years in leg chains and he was tortured multiple times. And he was applying Epictetus to get him through that. And so what he figured out, for example, is, well, I can't really control the fact that they're going to torture me. And I actually can't even control the fact that I'm going to break down under torture. But there are certain things that I could control. And so, for example, I, I mentioned this briefly in the book, that as he was going to be interrogated, he had this mantra where he would say over and over again, I think it was control fear, control shame. And so one of the things that he was having to deal with was the fact that he would be so full of shame, breaking under interrogation, under torture, and snitching on other people. And 
so he f- he came up with various ways in which the the other American captives in in Vietnam could keep their sense of pride and honor. And so one thing that he did to deal with the shame is when they said to him, would you like to go home early? Because he was such an important guy and it would have been a propaganda win for the Vietnamese. He said, nope, I'll stay here. And, and he said, none of, the, none of the American captives were allowed to take early release. And so that was a way of them keeping their sense of inner virtue of their honor, even though they were broken by the torture. That's a really, I mean, it's really dark, but it's really interesting because what it tells you again is it's the inner game. So so I may not have control over the external circumstances, but I can control my own behavior and my own thoughts. And, And so in a way, you have Miller, this very brilliant, very philosophical guy, drawing on these lessons from Epictetus that then were filtered down through Stockdale in this unbelievably intense situation. And we get to, if I can distill that properly and share the essence of those ideas, we get to benefit from that so that when we're going through the ringer, we can say, yeah, okay, I, I can't control that, but I can control this. I can control my behavior, my intention, my sense of my own honor, my own virtue. And so I think about this stuff a lot. This is very practical for me. I'm I'm actually trying to tame my own mind and trying to figure out how to behave better and and so so I I'm very I I'm I'm le- I I used to be immensely impressed with the beauty of Miller's mind when I was first writing about him in my twenties there was something really wonderful about the the fact that he was just so darn smart I mean, just brilliant mind and brilliant money maker and and gambler who outwitted everyone else. And gradually as I got older, I realized that actually what I admired most was his extraordinary resilience. And the fact that when faced with this incredible setback, he, he handled it just incredibly well. And, and there was a moment that I, I don't think I write about in the book where I was in his garden of his home in, in Maryland and was sort of walking out to see to, to see this place where he was saying, "Yeah, this is where I'm going to be buried," and and he he was I don't know. We were talking we were talking about what he had overcome, and I felt almost this sense of pride in him, having written about him and interviewed him over 20 years. You know, I I, I knew his story really well, and I could see this kind of triumph. And and he'd set up his own firm, and he was working with his son and with people he really liked. And he was living in a way that was deeply aligned with who he is. And he would show up for work every day in, in jeans and a black T-shirt. And, you know, when someone said to him, can you be a keynote speaker at our big fancy ball? He said, no, I've thrown away my tuxedo and I'm not buying another one. And so he was just living in this way that was deeply aligned with himself. And I, and I said to him, it's really amazing. You, you, it's kind of like Miller Unbound. It's like you don't take orders from anyone. You're not, you know, you're in control of your time, your, 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 your schedule, everything. And he's like, yeah, that's the best. And I, and I could just see that there was this kind of personal victory of this guy who's now 70, 71, who had, who'd come through this storm and realigned himself afterwards in a way that was deeply true to who he is in all of his glorious idiosyncrasy. 
and and you look at what he's done over the last few years. He's he he's he's made this enormous bet on Bitcoin, which he started buying at two hundred dollars per coin. But it, I mean, there were points where all of these people he admires, like Buffett and Munger, were saying Bitcoin is rat poison, and Howard Marks, all of all you know, all of his smartest peers thought he was an idiot, and and and. Bill has made an absolute fortune on Bitcoin. And it's, again, it's one of these great moments of independence from the crowd where he's just, it's its exactly what he did 20-something years ago when he became the biggest mm-hmm. shareholder in Amazon other than Bezos, basically the biggest outside shareholder, 15% of the company at a time when most people thought it was going bankrupt. And it went down from $90 a share to $6 a share during during the the busting of the, the dot-com bubble. And so I just saw this great iconoclast, this great maverick free thinker who, who it, it's the same thing that got him in trouble during the financial crisis. He, he went against the crowd and he was catastrophically wrong and he paid the price. And here he did it again with Bitcoin and with Amazon, which he, he turbocharged his bet during the financial crisis, his personal bet. And so now he's a billionaire again. And there's something kind of glorious about that. And, 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 and then when I said to him, when you, when you look back on the financial crisis, are you in some ways glad that you went through all of that pain and suffering? And he's like, yeah. And I just sort of sensed it because I think when I look back at what I'd gone through with losing my job and all of the fear that that, that brings back, catalyzes, I just I look back and I realize, God, what a blessing that was. It set me on such a different path that's been so amazing. And so that really resonated for me when he said, yeah, no, it was good. And, and, I, uh-huh. and I, I said, how come? And he said, well, it's kind of cathartic. He said, you know, it's good for the ego. It teaches you a lot, gets rid of a lot of pride, that sense that you know everything. And so I don't know, there's, there's so much to learn from someone like that that I don't think you would learn from someone who just is a very successful money maker. And, yeah. and so I, I, I'm not super impressed just with the ability to make money and, and not live a more thoughtful life. I, 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 th- I think I was more impressed with that when I was younger. I liked that aspect of the game of just being able to outwit the crowd. There's something about that that I found very, very appealing. And, and the older I get, the more I actually respect this sort of slightly deeper stuff where I look at people like Munger and, and, and Miller and Buffett and Howard Marks and Joe Greenblatt. And I think, yeah, they, they, they've figured out a lot of stuff. They're not perfect human beings by any means like the rest of us. We're all flawed, but they've figured out some really valuable valuable aspects of worldly wisdom, I, I think. I mean, it's why I love the book. I, I love it for the investment stories as well. That's just my personal. But I, I think there's so much, there's so many layers and, and so many threads that you could pursue. I do have to ask you this one question, though. So because I, in my own way, I, I wrote about investors and entrepreneurs and ultimately people who ended up being very, in most cases, being very successful in business. And I do know that there's a part of me that there is definitely a part of me that wishes I was like them, right? Like successful in certain ways or competitive or like able to outwit the crowd. Like th- there's a part of me that, that wishes I had those same abilities or that same competitive drive or whatever. And so I'm wondering, you've spent 
you, you've met a lot of successful investors. You spent a lot of time talking to them, profiling them. And I do wonder, like, does that ever, do you feel like there's a, there's a, a downside at all to that? Is do, do you ever run into that feeling or that issue where you're dealing with people who are just successful on a, on a different scale, on a different magnitude? Does that ever trigger, is there a downside to, to that? Do you, do you feel like that ever affects you? Yeah. I. You can certainly become full of envy when you look at other people who are more successful and you can you can see things like oh they're so philanthropic or whatever and you can think well yeah i would be that way if i were that rich or it's very easy to get into that but i think i think what i gradually realized is that the reason why i admired a lot of these people why their lives resonated with me whether it was a bill miller or a nick sleep or a monish pavrai or a charlie munger it's it's the in some ways, they were all outsiders who had diverged from the crowd, and they were thinking in a very, in a very free way. They were questioning conventional opinion, and they had constructed their lives in a way that was very true to who they are. And I think one of the things, so that resonated deeply with me because I could see that I was also an outsider who at least in my own mind, who didn't naturally want to go with the crowd. I naturally, I, I was always breaking rules as a kid. When, when, I was at, when I was at Eaton, I used to climb out of my window. You know, you had a thing called lockup at, I think, 6.15 or 6.30 at night. I mean, can you imagine how, how archaic that seems now? And you were locked up in your house. And I, I hated the school foods. Climb out of my window and wear a balaclava, a back, black balaclava, which I somehow as a teenager thought was unobtrusive, and, and would walk up the high street, Eaton High Street, to this Indian restaurant where I had an account. And I had ordered food. I would order my chicken ticker and my tandoori chicken and my naan, and I would go eat at this Indian restaurant illicitly. And then I would come back and I would sneak back up on the roof Pleasure. into my first floor window. Yeah, And so so I always was was kind of making rules for myself, trying to operate independently. I never really had this intention of fitting in and obeying, you know, conventional, heeding conventional expectations. And so I think when I saw these kind of maverick free thinkers, something resonated deeply with, with me. When I see someone like Miller saying, yeah, that's the best. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to be answerable to anyone. I just want to, want to do my thing that resonates deeply but what i gradually realized is well they could afford to do it and i couldn't really as a writer and there was pain in that there was a sense of and i increasingly have been able to do it thank god but but there is a pain in realizing that you have to i think reach a level of success to have that kind of independence and i i think that's when when you look at people like charlie mungo Munger would say the 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 money the money really gave him independence. That was what he was really valuing. And and Bill Ackman said the same thing to me. He said he said he he loved the fact that he could say what he thought, do what he thought. Monish Parabrai, same thing. He he Monish would do things like he when when people wanted to have meetings with him, potential shareholders potential investors in his hedge fund he would just say I, I don't like the whole mumbo jumbo of having to meet with people and pitch the fund i'm not going to do it and so he would perfectly happily 
forego millions of dollars in fees because he just didn't want to live that way. And I, I remember at one point working on a project with someone I really disliked who was kind of a bully and threatened me at one point. And Monish said to me, you know, if you had had a bit more money, you just would have walked away and said, you know, fuck you. And, and I realized that was true. And so I do think this is, this is helpful to know that what the money really is giving you is not the fast cars and stuff, although Monish does have a Ferrari and stuff, and he enjoys his Ferrari. And, and Ed Thorpe, you know, has his Tesla, which he really enjoys. I mean, they're, they're, you know, Ed Thorpe likes the fact that he has a beautiful view of the, the Pacific Ocean from his house. I mean, mm. the, the money gets you some stuff in terms of luxuries. But what, it, what I think it gets you that's more valuable than that is this independence, this ability to live your life on your terms. But then if you think about that more deeply, then you start to think, well, how much money do you need to live life on your terms? And remember Tony Robbins, who I became friendly with at a certain point, saying that people often overestimate how much money it'll take to to live the way they want to live. It's not... I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't need a very fancy car. I just don't care about my car. I don't need a particularly grand house. What I actually care about much more is doing work that seems valuable to me, not working mm. for people I dislike, only working with people I like. And so I'm very willing to forego money just to work with people I really like. And... So that's very clarifying. So once you know that part of the goal is to lead a life that's more true to who you are and to have that kind of independence, then then it's not just that you have to be a billionaire to do that. You can actually say, well, yeah, I've got enough that I can turn down projects I dislike or that don't seem right to me or for people who I don't admire. And And so it's been clarifying to me to, to know that being aligned with who you are in a deep sense is, is a very important thing, that that's the goal. It's the, it's the independence. It's not, it's not the number of zeros in your account. It's actually living in a way that's true to who you are. So, so for me, even the fact, the fact that I got up this morning and I sat and I read for a bit, I read some, some, some obscure Tibetan Buddhist book and and have my coffee in my armchair and then you know i don't know read, read a capitalistic prayer book which sounds kind of nuts which i'd be like god really i did that and then and then i drove over to my very beautiful office overlooking the water here in in westchester and i get to chat with you and that's really nice so so i'm sort of i'm in control of my time and i'm I'm prepared to forego a lot of money to to do that because those are things that are valuable to me, like to be able to keep reading, thinking, sharing ideas that I've picked up along the way. That that that's a very that's a very core aspect of what a what a happy and abundant life is for me. And so I think if if there's any takeaway, and I'm sorry to be so so self-referential, if there's any takeaway, I think. You have to really ask yourself what what constitutes a happy and successful and abundant life for me. 
And so you have to say, well, if when you have these fantasies about becoming really wealthy, like what is it that you're really after? Like, is it the respect and the honor? Is it the fast cars and the fancy house? Or is it actually just that, that kind of sense of peace of not having to worry about the paying your bills, being able to do the work that you want to do. And I think also one of the reasons why I end the book by writing about Arnold Vandenberg is you can also see that an enormous part of a successful and abundant life is sharing with others. And so he said that at a certain point, once he, once he had got to a point where he didn't have to worry about paying his bills, he said the greatest pleasure that he's got from his money is actually helping other people. And so I think it's, it's clarifying to think about these issues of, of what actually constitutes a, a truly abundant life for you. And that's so personal. It's so idiosyncratic. So someone, someone like Irving Kahn, who I wrote about, who I interviewed at the age of 108, still at the age of 100 and something, was commuting by subway or bus to his skyscraper in midtown Manhattan. And that was what was important to him. And, you know, he loved his work. He loved working with his son and his grandson at his family firm, Kahn Brothers. He loved studying technology and new trends in technology. He loved reading books. And he, he, he didn't want to retire. And he didn't want to go fishing. And he, he didn't even really like traveling much. He just wanted to sit around and read and think and make good decisions. And, and so I, I think knowing, knowing that the goal is to construct a life that's aligned with who you are is a very valuable thing. And then not to have the illusion that the money, the amount of money you make is actually what's going to determine how happy you are. It's going, it's, it's important up to a certain level because it gives you some independence. It allows you to live in a way that's aligned with who you are, but it's, it's more about the alignment, the independence, the ability to share. And, and you might have that, with a million dollars, you might have it with 500,000, you might have it with 10 million. It's different for all of us. But I don't think you need to be a billionaire to get there. This very much strikes a chord because when I was thinking about it, I came out at a very similar point where it's, I mean, it was a little bit paradoxical for me because I realized, I don't know, things like like real wealth or having a certain investment track record or doing certain deals, whatever, like all of that was not actually important to me. What I wanted was to not worry about money. But what happened by wanting to not worry about money, what happened was like all I worried about was money, like and how, how to to get to that point. But I think that was partially also because I was just in a, in a career path where I just was very disconnected from from what I was doing. And I was like, this cannot be this can't be my life. Like, I'm, I just I don't I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. But I think this is. Yeah, I, I was just mentally nodding to every word you said. I was like, yes, this is exactly true. This is a little bit shifting gears, but just when I when I think about the lessons from the book, there's always this this question of a lot of people who, who read it, they're not professional investors, right? And so the question is always, okay, how do you, what lessons can you take away from somebody who plays a game professionally at a very high level that you yourself can't realistically really play at home at the same level, right? It's, it's just investing is so competitive. And, and I think a lot of it comes back to not just the, the investment of time or, or skill, but also just the, the temperament. And, and you mentioned how important that is. And I'm, I saw this three times in, in the book where you wrote sleep, Marx and Evar. They all they had the good fortune to stumble into an opportunity or stumble into a strategy that suited their minds. And I always wonder 
how does one find the kind of the alignment between how to invest or how to go through life and in their own temperament, right? It comes back to this self-awareness. And I'm wondering, as you as you profile the people, some of them go through an evolution of they start in like Nick Sleep starts in deep value land and eventually invest in, in, in Costco and high quality companies. And so they have to go through this learning journey. Is that... I'm struggling with with how I formulate the question, but I always wonder, some of us are lucky to stumble into something that works and it connects. And some, you know, and sometimes you stumble into something and and you you just find things that that don't work. Well, some of it's luck, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the things that Howard Marks talks about very eloquently is he, he obviously, when he started off his career, the Nifty 50 stocks were all the rage. And I think, his, I think he was at a predecessor of Citigroup, if I remember rightly, then, were cheerleaders for it. And then things kind of went wrong. The Nifty 50 imploded. And I think he was kind of pushed into finding a new position. And they basically said, well, they, I mean, they kind of pushed him into this new area of bonds that happened to suit his personality extraordinarily well. And and so he'll talk about how it was just luck. Like they could easily they could easily have wanted him to go into some other area. Like like he said he said to me, look, I would have been terrible as a venture capitalist because it's all about blue skies and looking at what can happen. And he said he's a natural born warrior. And he loves the fact that with bonds, you can actually sort of say, well, there's something knowable here. There, there is a, this debt is going to be repayable at this date. And it's more knowable than trying to decide what's going to be the next Tesla or Amazon. And so I think, but for Howard, that recognition that a lot of life comes down to luck has actually been very liberating because for one thing, it, it, it spares him from what 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 I somewhat facetiously call master of the universe syndrome, where you start to believe that you're really spectacular. And he he looks back and he thinks, God, I was lucky in so many ways. And I think having again, if 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 as the pragmatic philosophers like William James would say, ideas are tools, having a sense of your own good fortune, being incredibly appreciative, and having a sense that as, as Howard would say, God, I'm just a lucky person. That's a wonderful mindset. And I think you end up becoming luckier in your life when you go around with that mindset because people are more inclined to be with you when you feel good about your life and you feel appreciative and you're upbeat and you're positive than if you're sitting around thinking, poor me, I can't believe my, you know, I, I bet on the nifty 50 and it all went to hell and now look at me and everything's fallen apart. So, so I think the recognition that there's luck involved is kind of helpful in in multiple ways. But again, to go back to your question about how you find something that suits your temperament, I think in all of, in, in so much of the book, I'm writing about the importance of self-awareness, of actually knowing how you're wired and what your talents are and picking games that play to your talents. So, So someone like Munga says, if you're, if you're five foot three, don't become a professional basketball player. You have to actually play games that suit your skills and your temperament. And, and so for me, 
part of the lesson of writing the book is to look at these great investors and say, well, I'm not them. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not rational in the way that a Munger is or a Monish Paprai is. So, so I've said to Monish, for example, have you read any of these other David Hawkins books that are really mystical and esoteric with titles like I, colon, reality and subjectivity or the eye of the eye, something like that. And Monish is like, no, no, too, too mystical for me, not factual enough. You know, whereas for me, that stuff is endlessly intriguing. I can go very deep down that rabbit hole. I mean, I, I think those, those esoteric books of Hawkins are really beautiful. Whereas for Monish, Monish reads Power versus Force and he's like, let me be more truthful because that's, that's, that's the power move if I just tell the truth. So knowing, knowing that I'm wired differently from Monish, Monish, Monish is optimized, as he once put it to me, for, for the game of investing. He's very rational. He plays the odds. He loves playing, playing um, blackjack and, and poker and things like that for money. I mean, he figured out a card counting technique, basically, that he said is incredibly slow and boring, but that he has the patience for. I can't play games. I, I find games incredibly tedious. Even something like Scrabble, which I should love as a as a word person, I'm too impatient for it. And so I have to accept the fact that I'm I'm just not optimized to play the game of sitting in a room, reading annual reports, and and occasionally finding a mispriced gamble like a Munger or a Monish does. That just doesn't suit my temperament. And so so I have to outsource stock picking to other investors who are better suited for it. And and so I think just that, that self-awareness of saying, am, am I playing a game that plays to my strengths, my talents, and my interests? It's a very it's a very helpful filter again. And I, I, I don't know. So I, I, I know that you write a really good Substack letter, and pe- people have said to me, well, uh, someone wrote to me last week, a young friend of mine who's at Columbia Business School, and he said, well, obviously you should be doing some kind of Substack newsletter. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not what I'm built for. Like, like I want to be, I mean, I, I took something like four or five years on this book. I, I'm, I'm a slow contemplative ruminative person and i want to go uh, narrow and deep in some ways and i'm not i'm not someone who wants to pump out lots of stuff and build build my um email list and stuff i don't have an email list i never figured out the technology to do it you know i i mean i'm i i don't know so for me to sit around reading obscure tibetan buddhist books and reading the Zohar and re- re- reading, reading about pragmatic philosophy and stuff and then saying, oh, that connects to what Bill Miller has figured out. That connects to what Monish has figured out. That, mm. that plays to my talents because I just have this weird brain that's truly interested in that stuff. Like when I'm, when I'm left to my own devices, that's what I'm reading. And I, I remember this with my father. I remember once, my, my late father, who was a, a judge, I, I remember once he, he loved the stock market. I gave him an article about Alan Greenspan, who was then the Fed chief, that was written by Michael Lewis. And Lewis is a great writer, and I thought, well, my dad will love this. And I came out on my balcony overlooking the Hudson River in those days, this is 20-something years ago, and I see that my dad's sitting out there reading Sophocles in ancient Greek. And so when nobody was watching, 
what he actually wanted to do was read Sophocles in ancient Greek. And that's kind of beautiful. I, I admire that greatly. And so knowing, knowing what, what really interests you when left to your own devices is very helpful. And, and so, yeah, play, play games that suit your talents and your interests. And, and when you look at someone like Bill Miller, you can see that he's been pretty ruthlessly pragmatic about removing everything that isn't about the game that he wants to play, which is, as, as he puts it, it's all about how do I add value to my clients each month? And so he's reading philosophy, he's studying mathematics, he's, he's reading literature, all of this stuff, but it's all basically about how to think better, how, how to be... Uh, yeah, he, he's, he's, he's not wasting time putting on his tuxedo to, to go yeah. give a talk that he doesn't want to give. I'm going to have to ruminate on this because I think it's very insightful. I do think the Substack versus the book does come all the way back to something we talked earlier about how money gives you that independence of being able to choose the project or the trajectory or the, the, the path that kind of suits you best, right? So I do think that's in an ideal world, you, you would find the, the structure and, and the, the kind of the format I'm not knocking it in any way because it actually, for you, Substack is actually a really beautiful form. And, and so for me, one of the things that I realized is actually I want to do a podcast. I want to host a podcast, mm. but I don't want to get in the game of doing an episode every week or mm. twice a week or something because I don't think I'm suited for the volume game. Yeah. What I want to do is long, deep, ruminative conversations and so you know like the like the one we're able to have here and so so i think just knowing that i'm a slow moving beast is is a helpful thing because i shouldn't be doing the speed game and actually in some ways when i was at time magazine it was it was a weekly magazine and it was an incredibly intense schedule and i would work 70 80 hours a week very consistently it was a young man's game it was very intense and and I think I was good at my job, but but I don't think probably ultimately it really suited my talents and and it may be if it, uh, get, getting laid off and being forced to to figure out what should I be doing actually set me on a path of writing books that's much better suited to who I am and I I, I love writing books and I always adored books I love the feel of books and and I love podcasts I I love the fact that you can. You can sit and just have a, a thoughtful conversation. And so those are very idiosyncratic reactions and choices. And so this isn't, this isn't about making judgments about other people and their choices. It's actually about saying, what, what do I really care about? What, what do I value? And often you look back at the things that you valued when you were very young, and they're still the things you value now. So it's a, it's a, I think it's a helpful thing when you're trying to, to get a more aligned life to say, well, what, what was I doing when I was seven, when I was nine? What, what did I actually like spending my time doing? And did I get away from it? And, and I, I, one of the reasons that I was saying before that I was kind of stressed and melancholy this morning is I started to think, I think I'm getting away from what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing so much talking that I'm actually not Able at a certain point, if I'm if I'm spending my time on Twitter and LinkedIn and publicizing myself, at what point am I actually no longer able to do deep work 
of any sort. Mm -hmm. And so I started to just get the sense of, am I getting misaligned? Am I out of, out of kilter? And, and just to be self-aware and say, well, maybe at a certain point I'm going to need to go back into my cave and, and, and remove a lot of complexity and a lot of short-term stuff and actually start to think more deeply. And, and it's difficult because there are times in your life where actually circumstances, whether it's coming out with a book or setting up a new fund or having to market your new fund or your book or whatever, you know, where they make you, it, it requires you to do certain things that at a certain point get you out of alignment. But just knowing what that alignment is and that it's a priority to, to live in that way is really, is really helpful. And I, I write about it very briefly with a guy Mike Zapata, who was in SEAL Team 6, which is the unit that, that famously killed Osama bin Laden. And he ended up setting up a hedge fund. And he said to me, yeah, there are three things that are important to me. He said, God, family, and fund in that, in that order. And he said, even this conversation that you and I are having, it's, it's a little bit outside that. And he said, that's okay. But he said, I just need to know that I need to keep coming back to God, family, and fund. I, I, that was really helpful, and there was something, there was something kind of wonderfully tactless and lacking in terms of EQ that he told me that. But I think about that a lot. I think, okay, so what are what are the things I really care about? What what matters to me? And so for for, for me, I used to think it was really just writing was absolutely key as a professional thing. And after spending a lot of time talking about the book and the ideas in the book, what I realized is it's more about sharing ideas. I like that whole aspect of, of synthesizing and distilling ideas that I think are really valuable from other people, whether it's stuff I've read or people I've interviewed, and then sharing them. So that's, that's kind of a tentpole. That's one of the central things. And then, you know, my spiritual life is important to me. And so, you know, whether it's meditation or studying Kabbalah or studying Tibetan Buddhism or reading about Stoicism. That's really important to me. My family is hugely important to me. Friendships, relationships, very important. And then, I, I don't know, I can see that it's really important to, to build resilience, to build emotional equanimity. And, and that's related to the spiritual question. But So things like meditation and exercise become hugely important in terms of building emotional resilience and equanimity. That's got to be key. Health in general, I I grudgingly have come to realize it's hugely important. I used to just work and not really do any exercise, and I used work as an excuse not to. And increasingly, I realized that just exercising several times a week removes a hell of a lot of stress for me and, mm-hmm. and yeah. makes me feel better. It has so many benefits. I, th- I think meditation, likewise, has so many benefits. So I think just going through that process of of thinking – how do I remove all of this clutter and complexity so I get closer to being true to who I am? And it's, a, it's a very helpful process, and it's so idiosyncratic. So even you think of Zapata putting God before family and family before fund, that's a very interesting... It's, and, and I assume that for someone like him who's ex-SEAL Team 6, the, the exercise and physical health that doesn't even merit being one of the three things because, you know, it's so obvious that he's got to stay fit. But, but yeah, I think that's a useful exercise. I, th- I think it's, it's very clarifying. And, and, and one of the things that I, th- I, I would really encourage you and your listeners to do is also just to think about something that Nick Sleep talked about, which is this idea of destination analysis, where you, 
you look at what's a desirable destination in 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and then you work backwards and you say, what, what are the inputs to get me there? And, and he would do this with a company as well. He would say, okay, how, how does a company like Amazon get to this desirable destination? And are they doing what they need to do to get there? But I actually think when you're, when you're picking those areas that you want to focus on in your life, whether it's exercise, family relationships or work or whatever, it, it's really helpful to do it with a sense of the destination in mind. And, and so start with the destination and think, okay, what, what sort of person do I want to be? How do I want to be remembered at my funeral? How do I, when I look back at the end of a long life, what will I be proud of? And, and then think of the inputs to get there. And that's also clarifying because because I can sort of say, well, I want to I want to write a few books that actually have enduring value, and so then I have mm-hmm. to sort of say, well, if I write a lot of really ephemeral stuff, that's not going to endure, and so and if I write a lot of books and the quality deteriorates because I'm just pumping stuff out, and so I make more money and I have a bigger brand and more reputation, that's not going to cut it because it's going to be superficial drag. But if I write two, three, four books that are really valuable, and I look back at the end of my life and I think, ah, that actually had an impact, that that gets me closer to the destination. So again, it's a very helpful filter. So if you so so when I was interviewing people like Ed Thorpe, I really wanted to know, or Irving Khan, I wanted to know when you look back at, at the end of an incredibly long life, Irving Khan at 108, what are you proud of? And what mattered to him were things like creating a firm that served its clients well, family, health, having a boatload of kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids, and, and learning stuff. Like, he really, like the reason he always collected books and read so much is he loved learning. And he said, at a certain point, life is so mysterious that you have to turn to other people who know more to get the answers. And so it was really clear that Ben Graham, who was a close friend of his and a mentor of his, had had given him really important answers about how to think about investing and business. And so I think, again, to instead of focusing so much on where we are right now, to look at the destination, look at a desirable destination for your life and then work back and then say, am I focusing on the things that actually are going to get me there? That's a that's a very helpful filter. I, I do that a lot. This is this is one of the things that really helps me decide what what I'm going to do and what not to do. And you look at Ed Thorpe, and he said when when I asked him about what he regretted in his life, he said I don't regret any of the principal decisions that I made. That's a that's a really interesting comment. So then you think, wow, looking back in his eighties, he's really happy about the principal decisions he made, even when they worked against him, even when he made less money, for example. He looks back with great pride in the fact that he behaved in a, in a principled way. That's very, very clarifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to what you said, where you want to be, when your life or what you do kind of it becomes a little bit out of kilter, right? When you move away from that path that leads you to the the destination that, that you want to be on. And I, I just want to say, if you do long ruminating podcasts, I'll be the first subscriber. And if you go back into the cave to 
you know, discover the the essence or the treasure for the next book. I, I very much look forward to to that day as well, or or, or to the book. This was uh, spectacular. I I really loved this conversation, and I, I really want to thank you for sharing so so freely. I don't know. I I, I just thought I, I don't want to have a conversation about just the investment content, but this was so much richer and there's so much more I, I want to think about. So, so again, just thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Frederick.